The uh, song was very appropriate that Ken sang because uh, we're going to be speaking about that uh, as we did this morning and uh, as we'll do this evening and also in the morning. Three messages on, as I announced this morning, on a subject that, now this might surprise you, that is really not dealt with that much in Scripture as a whole in comparison to uh, another subject we'll be uh, dealing with uh, at length after this uh, three-part series, and that is uh, through the first uh, parts of the first 20 chapters of Genesis dealing with uh, mainly the nation of Israel. Uh, what has happened, what is happening, and what's about to happen. Now, if you keep up with current events, you should be in ready expectation. If you're not saved, you should be scared to death, not able to sleep at night. If you're saved, though, you go home, get a good night's sleep, and maybe I'll be gone by in the morning, go to sleep here, wake up there, so to speak. But I'm going to be dealing with the rapture tonight from uh, be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <coughs> And I dealt uh, out at Faith uh, Baptist uh, this morning, uh, well, I didn't really deal that much with the types. I probably didn't deal any more with the types out there than I'm going to be dealing with uh, a central type here tonight, and that will be out of Genesis 21, 2, 3, 4, and 5, which we'll get to in a little while. But in uh, 1 Thessalonians, let me find it right quick. Uh, that's a problem I usually have when I get up here. I start talking and don't turn to where I need to be. No one has that trouble but me. Hey, that rhymes. All right, here we are. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, <clears throat> that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Now note the order, with a shout with a voice, uh, the voice of not the archangel, an archangel, there's more than one archangel, and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in uh, literally in clouds, not the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I'm not going to keep reading at this point, but suffice it to say, the chapter break is in an unfortunate place at this point because the text keeps on reading, uh, keeps on uh, going, uh, telling, uh, really uh, commenting on what has uh, preceded and telling about what will happen uh, after these saints are caught into the heavens. And it presents two different types of individuals. We'll get to that in a little bit during the course of the message. Now, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. He really, he really issues a command. And uh, the voice of an archangel and the trump of God, there's a trumpet going to sound. A trumpet will sound for the removal of the church, a trumpet will sound for the regathering of Israel. You can find that in Matthew 24, down around verse 29, 30, uh, when uh, the Lord returns, sends out his uh, angels to regather his people from throughout the Gentile world. And, of course, uh, there's an order of events to that, which we'll get to during the course of one or more of these messages. Now, why think, uh, think about some things a little bit. Why would the sun have to return? Well, for one thing, because that's in accord with biblical typology. 
I'll go into that in just a moment, but let me uh, say this. The dead in Christ will rise first, and the dead in Christ rising first, don't think of that as uh, any point of time uh, before the living are caught up, because in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a word used in the Greek text, atomus. We get an English word from that, spelled the same way, A-T-O-M, atom. Atomus has to do with the smallest unit when it's used in reference to time, with the smallest unit of time conceivable. Now, I used a millisecond at one time to illustrate this. That's because I worked with a radar unit in the National Weather Service, and I was familiar with the pulse of that unit at milliseconds. That's a thousandth of a second. Well, that's not even fast compared to, say, microsecond, a millionth of a second. But do you know something? There's uh, times faster than a microsecond. We can't even conceive of a millionth of a second. But the dead in Christ are going to be raised, and the living are going to be removed in just like that. It's so fast and faster than that. You'll be here you'll be there. You're not going to know it. You're not going to rise and talk with one another and hi, how are you, and that type thing like so many people envision. It's not going to happen. Now, I know we talk about that. People make light uh, statements about it. I brought this out uh, this morning. I'll repeat it. Uh, M.R. Dehan, many of you uh, uh, would be familiar with that name. He was very instrumental in uh, uh, my early uh, studies. Many of you would probably echo that same thing because you've studied his books. Uh, that is, if you have, have a little bit of age on you. I see one, one lady out there. I won't point her out. She's right over here, though. She was uh, nodding up and down. I can tell you have a little bit of age on you, you see. Well, that's no reflection on anyone. But uh, if you go back to M. Marty Hahn's days, you're going back into the 50s, roughly. That was his heyday. He died in the mid-60s. But M. R. D. Hahn, in a light moment one time, uh, he made this statement. He said, if I go by way of death, he said, I want to be buried by an all-millennialist because I want to tell that all-millennialist all the way up, I told you so. I told you so. Well, he is buried pretty close to an all-millennialist, but he's not going to do that, and he knew that. It's just here and it's there. Now, why will Christ have to be present? I mentioned typology. Uh, let, me, let me state another thing, then I'll get to the typology in Genesis uh, 21, 2, 3, 4, and 5. In uh, uh, John, uh, John, John 11, I, I, was, I don't know why I couldn't remember that. Sometimes your mind goes a little bit blank. John 11, I believe it's verse 25. Uh, Wallace Chapel, does that name ring a bell with anyone? He was a Methodist preacher of past years, very fundamental. His, uh, he had an uncle, I believe, Clovis Chapel. That might ring a bell with you. Clovis Chapel has some books out. They're, they're good books. We'll forgive him for being a Methodist. But uh, that's all beside the point. By the way, uh, Royce mentioned wine a while ago. I'm going to have some things to say about wine, and you teetotaling Baptists might not like it. Uh, I noticed you were on the borderline with Royce, but uh, when, I, uh, when I get through, uh, you may want to say, I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Uh, by the way, I, I mentioned out at uh, Faith Baptist this morning that I was going to tell the people if they came tonight why the schedule's arranged like it is. You see, Roy speaks and I speak. Each night it's the same way. Would you like to know why? Yeah, I thought you would. The second speaker can correct all the mistakes of the first speaker. <laughs> But I'll tell you, I'll tell you now, now that I've said that, hey, you know, Royce and I said some nice things to one another outside just while I go shaking hands. I tell him how nice he was. He's telling me how nice. I mean, that's all over. It's done. But, uh, <laughs> but here, here's the thing. 
I, I sh I'm, I'm 79 years old. I should know better than this. Because Royce, he'll be up here in the morning, and he'll tear me up. And you know how he's going to do it? Just not saying a word. <laughs> That's it. That's the way he'll do it. But no, I'm, we, I'm just, of course, speaking lightly. Royce and I are real good friends, and we had a lot of fun together and so forth. But uh, it's just the way the schedule ended up. So let's leave it at that. Now, well, I was serious. I'm just kidding you now. Now you don't know whether I'm serious or not. Okay. All right, let's, uh, let's get into uh, what, uh, what I want to say about Clovis Chapel. Not Clovis, but his, his nephew, uh, Wallace. Uh, uh, Ruth, uh, of course, uh, many of you know that she died back, uh, oh, what, 06, and, uh, of Alzheimer's. And uh, when uh, we were living here in Chattanooga years ago, I was going to this school over somewhere in that direction, and uh, uh, Wallace Chapel came uh, to town to hold a series of meetings in a Methodist church right across from the school. And we went over there hearing one night, and I will never forget something he did. And it has to do with John eleven twenty-five. 25. He, uh, it was impressive. He sat back uh, until the preacher introduced him. And as soon as the preacher stepped out of the way, Wallace Chapel already had his speaker on. And he stood up and walked toward the pulpit. And as he walked toward the pulpit, in a very loud voice, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me. That was his verse for the night. And that's the way he introduced his subject matter. And this is why Christ will have to return with an archangel because the dead are to be raised and he is the resurrection and the life. Apart from the Son, the dead are not raised. And because of the Son, did you know that all of the dead will be raised? Not only, the, not only believers, but even unbelievers because of the Son. Apart from that, now they're not all raised at the same time with the same destinies, that's very true. Now in Christ all die, in Christ all are made alive. The alls are the same. But now... Or, or rather, I shouldn't say the same. They're all inclusive. Now, in typology, let's take uh, 21, Genesis 21, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You don't need to turn there. You're, you should be familiar with this. If you're not, let's, uh, let's rectify the situation. Now, in Genesis chapter 21, we have a supernatural birth. In Genesis 22... We have the Father offering the Son. Maybe I should say a little bit more than just uh, light statements about each or just short statements. Supernatural birth of the Son of Isaac. Abraham was uh, 90 and 9, 100 years old when uh, the Son was born, and Sarah was 90 years old. They were both beyond the age of childbearing. God produced a miraculous work in the lives of both, and Isaac was born. So we have a supernatural birth. Well, we have a supernatural birth with Christ. The Holy Spirit moves upon a woman. Uh, we don't, uh, you don't even want to begin to try to explain that. The scripture doesn't. So, you know, it's a strange thing that uh, uh, questions you get asked sometimes. You get asked questions, uh, well, could you explain this? Could you, well, how does, I always have a stock answer to that. And uh, here's, a good, here's, the, here's the stock answer, and you might want to pick up on it. Well, how does the Bible handle that? Well, it doesn't. Well, why in the world do you want me to try to handle it? You see? <clears throat> that's your way out of anything that the Bible doesn't handle. And that's a good way out of it. Why get all mixed up in, well, I think this, probably this. Forget it. There's too much in the Bible to study and spend your time on to get involved in that type of uh, nonsense, so to speak. Now, Genesis 21, we have the supernatural birth, birth of Isaac typifying the birth of Christ. In chapter 22, we have the father offering his son 
on a particular mountain. God was very careful about the place that Isaac was to be offered, Abraham offering the son. And according, uh, if you uh, look at the uh, three-day journey, things of that nature, and where it was, it was apparently the same place that God offered his son 2,000 years later, possibly the Temple Mount. It was right in that area. But you have a father offering his son, you have a father offering his son 2,000 years later. This is when uh, you, you find a question asked by... Uh, uh, Isaac, here's the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb? Well, you don't really go through 2,000 years until you get an answer, but you do, uh, the answer is all through the Old Testament. But you do find an answer 2,000 years later in uh, John chapter 1, John the Baptist standing and pointing to Christ, looking upon Christ. He, uh, the Greek word that's used, he really looked him over. I mean, he didn't just casually look at him. He looked this man over and he said, Behold the Lamb. You see, where is the Lamb? Behold the Lamb, 2,000 years later. The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's Genesis 22. Genesis 23, we have Sarah dying. Who was Sarah? The, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. What happened to the wife of God offering his uh, son? Israel is set aside. Also, Israel is looked upon as in the place of death. Genesis 23. Genesis 24, you have Abraham sending his eldest servant. Now, I don't know if this was Eliezer or not. You'll find the name Eliezer used many times because it's used earlier in Genesis as uh, this uh, central servant of Abraham. It could have been could have been another servant, but he sent this servant into the far country to procure a bride for his son. And he was very, very careful about one thing. This bride had to come from Abraham's family. The servant went into the far country, procured the bride, then took the bride out, the son comes forth to meet the bride. They met partway between her home, his home. Then they went to his home where the marriage was uh, consummated. That's Genesis 24. Do I even need to uh, go into the antitype? Here's the, the son coming down, just like in what we're reading here. The Lord coming down from heaven. He has to come down in accord with typology. He has to come down simply because he is the resurrection and the life. And Christians caught up. Of course, there's a, you, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. There's numerous things here not seen in Genesis 24. And that's the uh, division that takes place after all Christians are caught up at the judgment seat. The bride's singled out, but the bride, the spirit has been will have been at that time in the world for 2,000 years searching for a bride for the son, and this bride will have come from the family. It has to come from the family. That's in accord with typology. That's in accord with anything else you find about the bride. And go back to Genesis 2. I'll not do it tonight. We're going to do that uh, tomorrow uh, this time. And uh, no, we're not. We're going to do it the next morning, I believe. I won't spend the time on Genesis 1, then we'll get into 2 and 3 and so forth. So we'll do that then. But the bride comes from the body, the body of Christ. All Christians comprise the body. The bride is taken out of the body, out of the family of God. Now, what happens in Genesis 25 after the bride is taken out? After the, you see, after the spirit successfully searches for, finds the bride. All Christians, not all, I started to say all Christians, but Christians form the bride. And when, he, when these Christians have been reached that will form the bride at the judgment seat, the bride is removed, just like Rebecca was removed after the bride had been procured. The bride, when it is procured out ahead, will be removed. 
The sun will come forth just like Isaac came forth to meet the bride. They'll meet partway between her home, his home. Then the bride goes where? Goes to his home. It's the way the type reads. And there the marriage will occur in the heavens. The marriage is really not complete until after Christ returns. See, this is something not seen in Genesis 24. Until after he returns and Gentile power is overthrown. This has to do with the end of the redemption of the purchased uh, possession, the redemption of the inheritance. It'll be purchased through judgment, you might say. But uh, again, that's for a later lesson. We'll look at that in another lesson, and you'll, you'll see how all of this works out within the uh, course of uh, not only the type, uh, the antitype, uh, how it fits into Old Testament prophecy, how it fits into the first 19 chapters of Genesis. It's seen several places in there. Now, I started to ask you what will happen in, uh, once the bride has been taken out and the things in Genesis 24 occur in the antitype. Well, what happened in the type? The same thing will happen in the antitype. In the type, Abraham remarries. See, Sarah had died. Abraham remarries. Sarah was barren. It had took a supernatural birth to bring forth a son. Keturah brought forth six sons. She was very fruitful where Sarah had been barren. Well, after the bride has been removed in the antitype, after the Holy Spirit has procured the bride, removes the bride, then God will turn back to Israel. We have seven years uh, left on the Jewish dispensation the 70th week of Daniel, as it's often called. Seven years yet to run when God will deal with the Jewish people, bringing them to the place of repentance, bringing about belief when his son returns and they look upon the one whom they pierced. Then, once belief occurs, God can bring about events through the work of his son, after he returns, overthrows Gentile world power to complete the redemption of the inheritance. Now this takes you to, well, really that whole thought covers Revelation chapters 5 through 19, a whole overall uh, picture of uh, the, re the uh, son taking the redemptive scroll from his father's hand, breaking the seals, redeeming the inheritance, and this has to occur again in accord with typology. It's in the book of Ruth, chapters 3 and 4. Since it's set this way in the type, it has to occur this way in the antitype. There's no getting around the matter. I often illustrate things of the, in, in this uh, fashion. Did you know that events in the book of Revelation have already happened? Well, sure, John saw them happen. Try to change something in history. You can't change it. Try to change something you've said. Oh, you could apologize for it. You can't change it. Try to change something you've done in the past. You can't do it. It's not possible. How many prisoners do you find out in uh, prison, say, that uh, killed someone or something of that nature? They get saved and they say, well hey, the Lord's forgiven me, you should forgive me. You see, that can't be changed. It can't be changed. True, the Lord has forgiven, but there's still the law of man that has to be carried out. You can't change the past. The, the book of Revelation, John saw these things happen. He saw them come to pass. Well, how could that be? How could John do that? Did you know the Lord can move a man forward in time? He can move a man back in time. He moved Ezekiel both uh, uh, back in time and uh, had him see why the uh, Israelites were in captivity. He put him right in the streets of Jerusalem before the captivity, even though they were in captivity. And he saw it. The abominations of all the sin taking place. He moved John forward in time. 
Now here's an interesting thing. Time is not a constant. Time is relative. <coughs> this book is a constant. It's not relative. You don't change this. This doesn't change. Time can change. God can change time. Einstein came out with an interesting theory about time. And uh, I heard a, a scientist that should have known what he was talking about illustrate the theory in accord with Scripture. And he, sa he stated this, and I'll repeat it. You can think about it. This is not something I've come up with. This is a man that's schooled in the field of sciences, also in Scripture. He gave an illustration in accord with what, uh, with what Einstein is called, what they call the theory of relativity. Now, Einstein, of course, a Jew, one of the smartest individuals we've ever had uh, uh, walk this earth. And if you want to see what the Jews have done, just check back in the uh, fields of medicine particularly, and it's just list after list after list. I understand they even, uh, a Jew even uh, invented your cell phone. Uh, on and on and on the list goes. A little bit, a small nation, far less than 1% of the world population, and they've done all of this. Do you know why? Because of God's blessings upon the human race through this nation, even though they are in a state of disobedience even though he's not even dealing with this nation today. But Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3 remain true all through time. Now think how much more God is going to bless the human race through Israel once this nation receives their Messiah. They repent, receive their Messiah, and are restored to the land, and then God begins to bless the nations through Israel the nation of Israel. That's just out ahead. It's going to happen. Spiritual blessings you receive today, not a single one apart from Israel. Doesn't exist. Simply because God uses this nation to bless the nations of the earth. Now I'll have to think where I was. I was dealing with something and I I sometimes get sidetracked like that talking about the Jewish people and this is the way I get to, well, I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. Now, God's restoring Israel. God has divorced Israel. He separated himself from Israel in that respect. No longer his wife, no longer husband. But God, when he restores Israel, is going to remarry Israel. That's in John chapter 2. That's the first sign in John's gospel. It has to do with that coming day when God restores Israel. And I'm going to deal with that just a little bit when we get to Genesis 9, when Noah, after the flood, planted a vineyard. First thing he did, went out and planted a vineyard, grew some grapes, and made some wine. What in the world does that have to do with any of this? Well, and not the rapture. It really doesn't have anything to do with it, but it has a whole lot to do with the restoration of Israel. It has a whole lot to do with John chapter 2. It has a whole lot to do with Matthew 26, those verses that were read uh, during the last session. It has a whole lot to do with Genesis chapter 14, which we'll deal with. It has a lot to do with a lot of things. Maybe... When I finish, if Royce didn't convince you, you'll go home and drink a little bit of wine. I don't know. Did you know wine is really good for you? It is. Too much of it may not be. I went down to Australia about, let's see, it's the late 90s. Now, if you want to find some people that are down on drinking wine, you want to see the Australian Fundamental Baptists. They will try their best to convince you that, God, that Christ made grape juice. There's no way he's going to make wine. I took a kid down with me. I said, well, he's a, he's, uh, he's a young fellow at that time. He's a, on up in his 30s now, somewhere up in there, maybe close to 40. But... Uh, he was having stomach problems. 
And he drank wine in this country to alleviate the stomach problems. It helped him. We got down there, and he was about to die, the poor kid, and he couldn't drink any wine. And we went out to this one house. It was the brother-in-law of the Baptist preacher. Well, he had a whole wine cellar down there, and he, <laughs> he pulled up a, a, a bottle of wine and uh, uh, poured himself a glass, and he said, does uh, anyone else want any? Well, this uh, kid was sitting down at the far end of the table. He said, yeah, me. Well, this Baptist preacher and his son looked at this kid. I wonder if he's even saved, drinking wine. You see? That's the way it's looked upon. But let's, let's save that for another lesson. And I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure where I was a while ago, but I've, I've forgotten, and so let's let it go. All right. Go back to verse 16. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the ark, uh, uh, really an archangel. You'll find in Daniel that there's more than one archangel. And uh, with the trump of God, the trumpet's going to sound, the dead uh, rise first, then the living believers caught up. So let's, uh, let's get on down in uh, the next uh, chapter. <clears throat> but... Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. It has to do with the uh, passing of time, the seasons, that which occurs within the passing of time. Now, almost invariably, this section of Scripture is ascribed to the earth dwellers left behind at the time of the rapture. It's ascribed to the unsaved. It has nothing to do with the unsaved. Just uh, abuse your minds of that thought. It's talking about, it's continuing the thought of the rapture. <clears throat> now verse 2 in uh, chapter 5. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, what's the day? What, what is the day of the Lord? Again, those who would teach that this has to do with the earth dwellers left behind say, well, the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation. It has to do with the tribulation. It just continues on through the millennium. There's a major problem with that. That's not what Scripture has to say about the day of the Lord. If you go back into the book of Joel, let's just take a little bit of a journey. Go back, go back to Joel. You know where Joel is? Find Daniel, go over two books to the right. Good. I shouldn't do you that way, Alan. These are your people. I'm uh, harassing like this. All right, in the uh, book of Joel. There is a book that deals with the day of the Lord more so than any other Old Testament book in uh, relative to length, and it may deal with it more than any book uh, regardless of length. And uh, I'll uh, call that to your attention in just a minute. Now, when you get into the minor prophets, of course, there are 12. This is called the Book of the Twelve in the Hebrew uh, text. It's the way they looked upon it as one book comprised of 12 parts. The uh, book of uh, Hosea, starting out, pretty good-sized uh, minor prophet. Now, minor has nothing to do with uh, the uh, content, value, so forth of the book. They're called minor because of size. These, uh, I'll use an expression. I like to use this expression because some people uh, kind of look askance when I use it. The uh, minor prophets are pregnant with meaning. I picked that up from Wilson, by the way. And as I told the group this morning, he liked to use that expression. It was one of his favorites. He, this is pregnant with meaning. And that's a good expression. The word pregnant, it has to do more than a, a woman with child. It just has, it, uh, has, it's used in a different context there. And that's the way, uh, like I said this morning out at Faith Baptist, that's something I started to say. Uh, Royce got with me almost two years ago and said, you know, you and I need to get together and have a conference because uh, we studied under, just somewhat in memory of uh, Wilson, we studied under him, you and I, and uh, 
I think he intimated that we would shortly perhaps be leaving the scene. Of course, he's talking about himself, not me, unless, uh, unless the rapture occurs, and of course, we're going to leave. But uh, I will probably be mentioning some things about Wilson during the course of these messages because uh, I would like this to be, as Royce somewhat envisioned it, uh, uh, some things we might have picked up from him, some of the uh, Wilson sayings and uh, uh, just some statements uh, like the like that one, and uh, well, it was a statement I made about the rapture this morning. Called attention to something he said. I was uh, talking about so many people out there believing that uh, there's a selective type rapture. Part of the church will be taken out before the tribulation. Parts going through the tribulation, or others believe the whole church is going through the tribulation, and they come up with so many ideas that. Uh, you don't know where to stop with uh, presenting them. Well, I'll tell you where to stop. Just forget about it. I've already presented too much. Because Scripture says, Isaiah 8:20, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. You go strictly by the word. What does the word say about the rapture? Well, I'm going to show you a few things tonight. And if you're here in the morning, I'll show you some more before we get into uh, Genesis 1 and uh, tomorrow evening. Well, I'll tell you what it, uh, what it says so you can look for it. It says that Christians are going out when these events occur, and how many are going? Well, I'll leave that for just a minute. I was talking about the minor prophets, and then I got off on the rapture. I want to show you something about the day of the Lord. Hosea deals with it in, in its entirety about uh, Israel's harlotry. It uses Ephraim uh, as a an individual representing Israel pretty much throughout the book at different times. Uh, Hosea ends the same way that uh, any of the Old Testament books end that deal with the subject, and they really all deal with the subject, and they don't necessarily all end with this statement, but they work toward this statement. And most of them, if not nearly all of them, end with a picture of Israel repenting, believing, the harlotry being done away with, and right at the end of uh, Hosea, I'll just read a couple of verses to illustrate the point. Ephraim, representing Israel, shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? Uh, I've, uh, I'm a green fir tree. Uh, uh, verse 9, who's wise, he shall understand these things. Prudent, he, prudent, he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. But the idea is Ephraim's going to say, what if I to do this anymore? It's going to be done away with. You find the same thing in the book of Joel. It ends up with Israel in the Messianic era. And Joel's a good place to illustrate something uh, that I'd like to bring out, and I, I'll, you'll hear me bring this out over and over, and that is... Scripture will go over a certain realm, then it'll go over that again and give you commentary on it. Then it'll go over that again and give you more commentary on it. That's the way the whole of Scripture is set up. That's the way it begins. It starts out in the first 34 verses giving you the whole overall picture. Then you pick up in the next verse and it continues on and starts giving you a commentary, filling in the gaps. Then more commentary, more commentary. It's just going over a, a subject and keep going over it and keep going over it until finally, if you're not asleep, you get it or get at least some of it. Types are the same way. Parables are the same way. Not one, uh, any one type gives a complete picture. It gives a part of the picture. Now you go to another type on the same subject, it fills in some missing gaps. Go to another, it starts filling in more. And you go to others, filling in more. Pretty soon, you have a word picture coming into shape. See, the parables do the same thing. One parable just gives a, a certain aspect of it. Another parable will fill in some details, more details, more details. The whole of Scripture is set up that way. It just keeps going over, keeps supplying commentary, keeps filling in data. Now, the day of the Lord in the book of Joel, mentioned several times, this has to do with uh, Israel, past, continuing into the present, projected out into the future. 
but it deals mainly with Israel in that future day after Christ returns. Look at uh, oh, chapter 1, verse 15. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Well, that could be the tribulation, but let's keep on reading. Blow ye the trumpet, in the chapter 3, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. It is nigh at hand, a day of darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds, of thick darkness. Well, still we haven't narrowed it down. Let's keep on going. You go down to, uh, let me see. Go, to, go all the way down to chapter 3. Behold, in those days and that time shall I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And, that, and when he does this, verse 2, he's going to gather all nations. will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. We'll plead with them there for my people, for my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, go down to verse 12. Let the Gentiles be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is another picture of the latter part of Revelation chapter 19. After Christ returns, you have what's called the battle uh, by many, the battle of Armageddon. That's uh, because it takes place in the hills of Megiddo, and that's really all Armageddon is just a transliterated Hebrew word. Har means mountain, Megiddo. It's in the hills or mountains of Megiddo. But let these Gentiles be uh, awakened. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Here it's called Jehoshaphat. There will I sit to judge all the Gentiles. Now he's going to judge them by trampling the winepress. These are the armies which will come against the Jews after Christ has returned. And uh, this will be after their national conversion, after he regathers them back to the land. And he is in the midst of his people. You'd read that he's in the midst of Israel back in 227. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I'm the Lord your God, none else. The people shall never be ashamed. But now here he tramples the winepress. Look at verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Look at the rest of that verse. For the day of the Lord is near. It hasn't been run in seven years. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel in that coming day. I added in that coming day. Now, it's in verses 17 through 21 where we have Israel restored, placed back in the land. Look at verse 18, just by way of introduction to the uh, message on Genesis 9 and the wine that I talked about. It shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. What's the difference in that wine that will be dropped down in that day and the wine that you can make today? We'll save that, of course, for the message because that's where I want to spend a little bit of time and show you something about the wine that Christ made, show you something about uh, Melchizedek bringing forth bread and wine uh, when Abraham uh, met Melchizedek after he was returning from the battle of the kings. There's a day of the Lord in uh, Joel. Now, let's, let's look at something in Amos. Uh, this... Uh, it's not about the day of the Lord, but since we're looking at the minor prophets, this might help you. Are you in Amos? You should be on page 934. Royce is. He and I are probably the only ones here that are. Anybody on page 930? Hey, look, a few hands going up. That's good. That's the old Schofield reference. Now, uh, look at... Um, uh, let me pick up some points here. All right, let's take verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, that's in chapter 1, verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. He's going to do a certain thing. Look at verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza 
and purport he's going to do something about this. He's going to judge these nations. In verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre, Tyrus, and for four. Then you keep on going down in chapter 2, you'll find this again, verse 1. For three transgressions of Moab and for four. Then you get down, you, you, he deals with these Gentile cities, talking about Gentile nations when he returns, what he's going to do with them. Then he talks about Israel. Look down in verse 6 of chapter 2. For three transgressions of Israel and for four. And the rest of the book has to do with his dealings with Israel. He starts out showing what he's going to do with these Gentile powers in the coming day of the Lord. Why do you suppose the Bible says for three transgressions and four? What does that, what does that have to do with anything? Add three and four. What do you come up with? This is simply a poetic way of saying seven. And seven is a complete number. It has to do with God. In fact, it's God's number. It has to do with complete judgment that the Lord will bring upon these nations. And do you know why they mainly will be judged? Here's an interesting thing about the way the Lord works. He has driven the nation of Israel out among the Gentile nations because of disobedience, harlotry, you name it, they did it. And he drove them out there in order that they would be persecuted by the Gentile nations to bring about their repentance. That's the reason Israel is out among the Gentile nations. And that's the reason that the nation of Israel in the Middle East with almost 6 million Jews back in the nation is going to have to be uprooted and driven back out among the nations during the tribulation because... Where did God deal with Jonah relative to repentance? On the ship or in the sea? The sea has to do with the Gentile nations. So there's a type. You know what he's going to do. And it tells you what he's going to do. A man of sin is going to come in, uproot those uh, Jews, drive them out among the Gentiles because it is among the Gentile nations that God has decreed that he will deal with the nation of Israel relative to the matter at hand, which has to do with repentance. And they have a promise. That promise is good today. It's good all through time, though it won't be uh, exercised or they won't take advantage of the promise until they're driven to the point that they will have no other recourse than to turn to the Lord, call upon him, and he, they have the promise that when they do that, he will hear from heaven. And that's when Christ is going to return. They're going to look upon the pierced one, want to know what, what, what are those wounds. And if you want a picture of that, you go to Genesis 45 or you go to Acts 9. Again, a couple of types. It has to be in accord with the type. If you don't get anything else out of these lessons, let me, uh, let me say this. When you're studying something in Scripture, always ask yourself a question. How does the type handle this? What does the type have to say? Because the antitype will always be in accord with the type. It can't be any different. Now, would you like to know why there are so many different answers to one single question that people ask today? And the question is in Acts 16.30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You don't think there's a lot of answers to that question? You'll find a lot of answers right among so-called fundamental Baptists. Well, you've got to start by repenting. You've got to start by doing this, that. You've got to forsake all your sins. You've got to confess your sins. And then they finally get around to believe on the Lord Jesus. The Bible only has one thing. There's, here's an interesting thing. That question is only asked one place, one time, and answered one place and one time in so many words in all of Scripture. There shouldn't be any problem. That's the only place. Now, true, salvation is dealt with all through Scripture. But the, the direct question, the direct answer, that's the only place you're going to ever find it. And uh, the question and answer in so many words. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe. That's it. Whatever happened to the word believe? Believe simply has to do with uh, 
what it says. Believe what God has to say about the matter. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, the question again, do you want to know why there's so many different answers to that? Well, I'll tell you why. They have not gone back to the Old Testament and started out and looked at this whole overall framework dealing with salvation after the fashion in which God set it forth in the Old Testament. And this is done mainly through typology. The types have been belittled, they've been spoken against. I asked one seminary graduate that came out of uh, a school I mentioned this morning, I won't mention it again, four-year degree out of the school, Master of Theology. He was down on me because of my uh, uh, use of types. I asked him, I said, to what extent were you exposed to types during your four years in this particular seminary? He said, I can remember one time, one class, one time during the class a subject was mentioned. Aside from that, none. Can you imagine that? Going through four years of seminary and not studying the Bible after the fashion in which it's been written, starting at the basics. No wonder the place is all messed up out there. Now, I went out to hear a minister last uh, Sunday. I'll just digress a minute, and we'll get back to the lesson in a second. Uh, my wife and I, uh, last Sunday, we went out to hear a minister at uh, a particular Baptist church, uh, independent Baptist church, as I believe this one is. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, I walked in, and as uh, my customary way to do it is, uh, the preacher, when he came down to introduce himself. He only had a small group. As my customary way is, uh, what are you preaching on this morning? Uh, we might want to leave, you know, if it's not, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that real nice formal type of uh, statement. Uh, but he knew I was joshing him. A anyway, he said, uh, well, I'm speaking on Daniel 3. Well, you don't know how close I came to saying, oh, you're, uh, you're going to be dealing with the nation of Israel during the tribulation and uh, the restoration of Israel moving into the millennium beyond the tribulation. Now, I kind of wish I'd said that because of the message we got, which had nothing to do with anything in Daniel 3. And that's the sad part out there today. You go out, they waste your time, uh, they, tell you, they tell you nothing, and I, I don't... I, I can't, say, I can't say anything to people that are, uh, say, I, I can't take it. I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's bad out there. And it, that is a shame. But now that I've said that, you know something? It's exactly like Scripture said that it would be. Exactly. The leaven has done a work, and some of these old Bible teachers, they're no longer with us. Uh, men like M. R. D. Hahn, men like Wilson. I don't know that they could take it today. Now, I say that a little lightly, but you see what I'm saying. God's removed them from the scene. He left some nut like me to get up here and say something like that. But there's a lot of truth to the statement. It's bad out there. I never thought it would get this bad, but we're here. If they're, if they're not having a rock concert at the church, you can't stay in there hardly. Uh, then they're, they're not saying anything. But let, let's, let's, let's leave that alone. In, uh, turn, turn over to Zephaniah while we're in the Minor Prophets. Let's just look at something about the day of the Lord. Uh, Zephaniah, there are 22 references to the day of the Lord in this short book of uh, really three pages in, uh, the, in the Bible I have. Very short book. It's, uh, what, three, three chapters over three pages. And most of them are in the first chapter after or following or uh, beginning with verse 7. Most of them are right there. It's just over and over and over talking about the coming day of the Lord. How do you suppose the book ends? Well, look at the last verse. At that time, I'll bring you again. Well, sure. He's going to turn back their captivity. He's going to restore Israel. It's going to be done 
at the beginning of the day of the Lord. It's not going to be done during the tribulation. Now here's the thing about the day of man and the day of the Lord. They do not overlap seven years. That is, the man's day runs from the creation of Adam to Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. The day of the Lord doesn't begin seven years before man's day ends. The day of the Lord begins at the end of man's day, after Christ returns. The day of the Lord has to do with the destruction of Gentile world power, which will occur after Christ returns. Then the day of the Lord continues through the millennium, 1,000 years in it. Then the day of God beyond that out in the eternal ages. But I just call your attention to Zephaniah. In fact, let's not read anything there. But if you want to read about the day of the Lord, uh, read especially the first chapter in Zephaniah. Just over and over and over, there's a reference to that day. Now back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And let's uh, move on down. I've taken quite a bit of your time. I'm going to take a little bit more before I'm through. <clears throat> now, there's another reason they put me at the end of uh, the session, because uh, if Royce came after me, he might not get up to speak. I do speak a while. Now, in verse 2, let's read that again and continue from there. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they, all right, who is they? Let's keep on reading. Shall say peace and safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman or a child, and they shall not escape. See, we're coming right out of the removal of the church. Let's continue with that thought. All right, in verse 4. But you, you Thessalonians, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. See, there's a possibility that this day can overtake Christians. But it's not going to overtake you as a thief. Why? Look at verse 5. You're all the children of light, the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch. Now, sleep is the opposite of watch. It's unwatchfulness. You're not watching for the Lord. Let us watch and be sober. They that sleep, they that are in an unwatchful state, sleep in the night. They that be drunken, now it's not talking about being drunk on wine, other liquor forms of uh, uh, alcoholic drinks, so forth. It's talking about unfaithfulness using different terms. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, see it's using day and night, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Question, do you hope you're saved? No, you don't hope you're saved. But there is a hope out ahead. It's a hope which we have presently. It's called that blessed hope. That blessed hope is not the rapture. Again, I'm going to deal with this in another section. That blessed hope is not the rapture. That blessed hope has to do with the appearing of the glory of Christ, which will occur at the end of the tribulation. In fact, the way the Greek text is structured in uh, the verse I'm referencing, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory are two ways of saying the same thing. The appearing of the glory is a further description of the blessed hope. When Christ returns in all of his glory, that's the blessed hope for the church, for Christians who have been faithful, and they will realize this hope by inheriting with the Son during the coming age. That's what this section in Thessalonians is about. It's about faithful and unfaithful Christians. It's about those who are watching, those who are not watching. It's about those finding themselves in the day of the Lord 
and not realizing, not knowing anything about what's happening because someone didn't tell them or a lot of someones didn't tell them. And it's about others who are knowledgeable and when they find themselves in the day of the Lord, then they will know what's happening. See, all Christians going to be removed appear before the judgment seat. How many Christians know what will be happening in that day? How many are told, being told today? Now, let me say this about man's day and the Lord's day so you'll perhaps uh, understand or better understand what I'm trying to get across. Man's day has to do with man on this earth during a 6,000-year period from the creation of Adam to the end of the tribulation. The Lord's day is presently in existence, but not on this earth. See, Abraham saw the Lord's day. He saw it. When did he, where, how did he see it? He could have seen it a couple of ways. He could have seen it via revelation, things he wrote. Then again, following death. Abraham saw my day. Christ said that. That has to do with the Lord's day, which presently runs, but not on this earth. Now, when Christians are removed from this earth, they're no longer in man's day. They're in the Lord's day. And that's what this is all about. It's about Christians, two classes of Christians, being removed into the Lord's day. Now, we'll see this a little bit perhaps uh, in a different light. I started to say plainer, but uh, I don't want to say it that way. We'll see it in a little bit different light when we look at this same thing in the book of Revelation. John removed into the Lord's day and what he sees in the Lord's day. He was no longer in man's day. He was removed from this earth and removed from this earth. There's nothing else that he could be removed into but the Lord's day. All right, back to where we are. Uh, verse, uh, let me read 8 again because I need it to go into 9. But let us who are of the day, that is, we're knowledgeable about these things. We understand what's about to happen. The Thessalonians did because Paul taught them. He didn't call in a rock band and get up there and talk about nothing. Paul went in and taught them the scriptures. They're knowledgeable. When they're caught into the Lord's day, they'll know what's happening. Now, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so many go back and compare some things in chapter 1. Well, look at, uh, look at 110. Let's uh, get a context on what I'm about to say. Uh, the latter part of 9 where it says, You turn to God from idols to serve the uh, living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which now literally is delivering us from the wrath to come. Well, what in the world is the wrath to come? Well, so many Bible students want to say it's the tribulation. You'll find that in commentaries. It's not talking about the tribulation. It's talking about Christians being delivered from the wrath to come. They say, well, it's talking about the Bible, uh, that is the rapture, being delivered via the rapture. No, it's not talking about. There's salvation and there's wrath for Christians out ahead. Salvation has to do with inheriting with the Son. Wrath has to do with no inheritance with the Son. But now look at uh, verse 9 with that, uh, with that in mind. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Well, I thought you were already saved. Well, you are saved. But we're talking about here uh, the salvation of the soul. We're talking about inheriting with Christ. We're talking about an ongoing process of salvation relative to an inheritance lying out ahead, which has to do with the blessed hope. And on you go with that thought. The wrath has nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with the tribulation. And this is one place that uh, people go to to show, uh, try to show something about the rapture. It has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture is back in the previous chapter. This has to do with events after Christians have been removed 
and it has to do with a salvation or a wrath, a chastisement at the hands of the Lord, thoughts along that line. It has to do with Christians who during the present dispensation were unwatchful. They were, to use the words here, asleep at the switch. Then it has to do with other Christians who were knowledgeable concerning these things, watched, and they were ready to throw the switch. That's your picture. I probably used that analogy. I used to work as a brakeman for the railroad years ago, and we got out and threw switches. So uh, maybe that's where I got it. I have no idea. But you get, the, you get the picture. Asleep at the switch or ready to throw the switch. If we went to sleep and didn't throw the switch, that uh, oncoming train could derail, wreck, and so forth. And a Christian in that state can bring about shipwreck, train wreck in his life. And the end result, out at the judgment seat. Now, I've held you long enough. I'm going to stop at this point. And we'll pick up again uh, in the book of Revelation with these same thoughts in the morning. And I'll be talking some more about the Lord's day and man's day and show you uh, John caught from man's day into the Lord's day. And we'll look to see what he saw in the Lord's day. Our Father, we're thankful that you've allowed us to look into your word, to study these truths. And I just ask that these messages on the rapture might be such that individual individuals will understand that we're all going out to meet the Lord one day, whether we go by a death or we're alive in that day, and that uh, Christians here might just come into a grasp and understanding of what what to look for relative to that coming day the judgment seat out ahead, the messianic era beyond that, and they might be give thought to striving for the crown. More than thought, that they might be eager, willing, able. They are able, willing, but they might be very, very eager to occupy a proffered position with Christ in the kingdom. It's in Christ's name. Amen.